I think that sometimes, particularly because a lot of these programs are set up by white folks, that the, the way that it's communicated is the intention is there. They, they have great intent, but the impact and how it's being put together and how it's being portrayed is from a, a savior complex. And that can't be received by us, right? It feels like charity. It feels like, or it's their own biases that don't think that you don't think that I can actually do more than what I'm doing. And I would even say this of even black and brown uh, entrepreneur support, you know, support folks is that sometimes because we've been in that system that we start to get conditioned to, to dream small. And we transmit those small dreams to our entrepreneurs who end up staying small. You're listening to Black Women Lead, a podcast elevating the stories, struggles, and accomplishments of Black women leading change in their communities. Welcome back. And I am your host, Piper Carter. I am here with Elaine Rasmussen, and her mission is twofold, to make impact investing mainstream and to democratize access to capital by and for BIPOC and rural entrepreneurs. She is the CEO of Social Impact Strategies Group, which is a B Corp, uh, a social enterprise that provides education, facilitation, consultation on inclusive economic development, impact investing, racial equity, and social impact. She's also the creator of Connect Up, a Minnesota summit, a first of its kind event that works to grow inclusive entrepreneur ecosystems grounded in economic justice. Her hashtags are moving billions and money moves. Welcome, Elaine Rasmussen. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You know, actually, I read it very slow, and it isn't actually a lot, but it's a lot in the sense of thinking about how we move from this toxic, capitalist, extractive economy into a regenerative economy that is built to promote life on this planet and the living and to return the value and hopefully the property to people who built this country, to people whose legacy is that of being uh, a worker, uh, unpaid worker to say the least, in the form of enslavement and to return that wealth right back into in, in, into the hands of, of folks who who literally built the entire country and 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 this includes uh people that were here part of the transatlantic as well as globally folks have come here and and all peoples that have come here that were not colonizers built this country and so it's to me this work you're doing is very important it's the basis of this podcast it's the basis of a lot of work that I'm doing 
it's the basis of many conversations that have been taking place. And um, you're doing it in a way that is not traditionally the way in which we have heard about creating wealth and creating opportunities for wealth. And so I'm opening up with this, you know, conversation because I want to, I want folks to really understand the transformative way that you are utilizing resources, the transformative way that you're looking at reimagining and recreating our society. And so I just wanted to put that in the, in the ecosphere because Dr. King was a proponent of reparations, whether he used the word or not. And at the end of his life, this is what he was actually fighting for. This is what the Poor People's Campaign was all about and how, I don't know, just amazing and auspicious it is um, that on this day, we are here with you, someone who is what I would say moving forth King's dream. And so I'll put a period there and I just I just wanted to welcome all of that and our ancestor Dr. King into the space for the thank you for the strength and the vision and thank you for people like you that are are taking that to the next level. So Elaine, I want to understand first about your work, like what is this work and then tell us about you know, the, the specific organizations. No, thank you for that auspicious introduction and uh, making that connection to this auspicious day. So Social Impact Strategies Group, the way that we talk about it is there are basically three buckets of work. The first bucket is consulting and facilitation. In our consulting and facilitation, we are working with government, we are working with foundations, we are working with corporations, Fortune 500, small, medium-sized companies, on identifying what does inclusive economic development actually look like? What does it look like from a policy standpoint? What does it look like from an operation standpoint within an organization? What does it look like when doing collaboratives? So a lot of times we get called in to do facilitations with collaboratives. So last year I did a collaborative uh, facility, two-day collaborative facilitation in Little Rock, Arkansas, where we um, were part of bringing together 55 folks um, that was led by an organization called Common Future and um, 55 folks from different industries. They were elected officials. They were banks. They were CDFIs, which are community development financial institutions. They were entrepreneurs. They were investors. um, They were farmers. But really, the conversation was rooted in how do we de-racialize access to capital, particularly for food entrepreneurs and farmers? So our role was really to facilitate that conversation. What really needs to happen? What is real and what's perceived, right? What are the things that are actually the the boxes, right? So we have policies, we have legislation. Those are actually boxes. And what are really traditions, which means if it's a tradition, it can be undone. And even policy, but that's a little bit more of a bigger lift, right? But traditions, oftentimes tradition and culture get mistaken for policy and rules, right? It's because this is the way that we've always done it. Doesn't mean that that's how it has to be done, right? So challenging those notions, having somebody objective to come outside of your world um, who understands enough about the world. I do have a finance background. So I know where the boxes are, right? And where can we push through those boxes? So that's on the consulting and the facilitation. And we work with folks around operationalizing, um, 
equity, operationalizing inclusion, operationalizing social impact. So typically what we tell clients who give us a call and they, they, they think that they want to work with us, we're like, we do not do DEI training. That is not what we do. Don't call us for that. We don't do that. I don't have the emotional fortitude to do DEI training. <laughs> what we do do, we're the ones you call after you've done your DEI training. Once you've done the training and you're like, okay, now what do we do? How do, what do we need to change? Where do we start? Who needs to be involved? That's when you hire us. We'll work with you at that point. So that's the first bucket of work, the consulting and the facilitation. We've worked with organizations like Allianz Life Insurance, uh, which is a Fortune 500 company here in the Twin Cities. We've worked with Greater Twin Cities United Way. Um, we've worked with um, organi- we actually worked with a, a group of incubator accelerators uh, across six Asian countries last fall, which was an exciting project to help them figure out how can they adopt a gender lens as part of their investing portfolios um, to support women entrepreneurs in. Um, across uh, six Asian countries. So that's the consulting and the facilitation. The second bucket of work is education. Our education work works on two different sides of the equation. The first side is investors. So the work that we do, we work with investment committees. We work with um, organizations who do some sort of investing, whether it be foundations or other types of organizations, banks, um, uh, other financial institutions, and to really try to, to look at how do you build a portfolio that's aligned with your values and your mission beyond your philanthropy? When it comes to philanthropy, it's easy to wrap your head around, oh, well, I want to support the things that have impacted me or are aligned with my heart or aligned with my values. What people don't really understand or they find it hard to wrap their head around is they act, can actually build an investment portfolio that supports those very same things. Um, then on the other side of the equation is we have entrepreneurs. So we specifically deal with entrepreneurs that are what we call early growth or second stage businesses. Um, in a variety of different communities, particularly here in Minnesota, we have a great startup community. If you have an idea and you're trying to get that idea off the ground, if you're trying to understand how to get to a minimally viable product, we have lots of great resources that can help you. That's when you're in the startup phase. Once you get past the startup phase, you start making revenue, you start needing to hire employees. That's where what we call the entrepreneur cliff exists. We build you up and build you up and build you up. And then there's nothing for you once you get to that point in your business. So after scanning the community and seeing that that was the biggest gap was really on this, um, what I call second base, first getting from first base to second base and second base to third base. That was the hole that was in the ecosystem. We're like, you need a you have a very different set of needs as a business as a business owner when you're in year 2 to year 10 of your business than when you just had an idea and so the education that we do we do online workshops uh, before covid we did in person workshops um, we're in the process of developing a masterclass workshops that will be available virtually but it's really for that second stage entrepreneur they've been making revenue they need to grow they need to build but also we're looking at how what are the other sorts of needs we know that they need back office support so this is how you build a back office nobody tells you how to do that even in business school i went to business school they don't tell you how to build a back office. They tell you how to buy a back office, but they don't tell you how to build a back office. So that's a lot of the education that we do. The third bucket of work is our annual conference called Connect Up. And at Connect Up, 
What we are looking to do is actually amplify and change the narrative of black and brown business owners, giving them space to be themselves. So this is for in our community, the only the only place that is grounded in the black and brown experience around entrepreneurship. Um, It is a place where we are intentional about cross-pollinating networks because we know our networks tend to look like us. So in order to get into different networks, um, there has to be intentionality around putting different networks together and putting them in a way that actually feels okay, that you can show up in the space and show up as your whole self. The other thing is that we really wanted to create a reverberation within the entrepreneur ecosystem. Um, Our ecosystem here has traditionally been very white, um, white service providers. A lot of the events when you attend were white folks. And I can understand why. There there weren't a lot of service providers that were people of color. The content was not grounded in the experience of people of color. And I really wanted to change that. I knew that that was what I experienced as an entrepreneur. And so I couldn't have been the only one. So I thought, well, I'm going to host a party and see who shows up. (laughs) And it's been wonderful because we've had three years of Connect Up. We do Connect Up annually and we've sold out every year. And I think it really has to do with the fact that we bring quality people around. Everything about our conference is action-oriented. You have to interview to be a part of our conference. You can't just register and sign up. There's actually an interview process, which throws our investors off. They're used to the gates being open for them, and they get to just walk through. And it's like, nope, you're going to go through the same process as everyone else. And um, But it's a really great two days that we spend together, lots of dancing, lots of music, lots of relationship building, because we know that people invest in people. But if you don't know the people, then how are you supposed to get investment? So that's just the, our work in a, in a nutshell, very high level work, our work in a nutshell. I, I was taking my notes. I have so many questions, but well, why don't I do my, why don't I do my couple of questions first about the work? You know, I want to dig into two aspects of your work that I see that are very necessary. I can relate to everything that you're talking about because I'm a business owner. I guess they have a word for people like me, serial entrepreneur. I have currently four businesses in a, in a nonprofit. <laughs> they all do different things, but um, I have been through um, three different small business training programs. What I will share, um, that I really heard you saying, like, this is where my ears like peaked all the way up when you were speaking is what I personally have been struggling with, with the through line with all of my businesses and what I feel these training programs. And it's this, it's this piece when you're in business and there are so many gaps. And so, like you said, there uh, maybe it's very sexy to be a startup or a new business, this kind of thing. So there's a lot of resources for people to write your business plan. But what I'm very interested in is this aspect of, okay, you have a business plan and you have a business, but there are varying levels to where you're still, you still need some support, some mentorship, some guidance, some classes, some skill upping, um, some experience. And the second part that I heard is this part around relationships. And so we know that when people go to university, I'm going to use that as an example, 
there um, is a certain level of access that one can get through going to a certain university or being a part of a certain sorority fraternity or social uh, connection or business connection, right? Or working at a certain place. Whereas if you're an entrepreneur, you may, you may have gone to a certain college and you may be a part of those social groups, those, but then you may have not. And so you may know how to write your business plan. You may even know how to sell your widget. You may have, you may know how to be in business, but then there's this relationship piece that could be a bit murky when you don't have that, that um, support to have that nurtured as to like how to have a relationship, how to maintain a connection, how to have a conversation, how to write an email, how to follow up, how, how much to follow up what to say in the follow-up, right? And then I think the third thing I wanted to highlight overall, what I really hear is self-determination and helping people learn how to fish as well as how to make their own fishing pole (laughs) and, uh, you know, find their own bait. (laughs) So these kind of things that help you uh, really be self-sufficient in business. And so, I want you to talk a little bit more without revealing your special sauce, of course, because this is your business model. But can you speak a little bit more to this aspect? Because um, in COVID, what we've seen is unfortunately many businesses and corporations and things either closing or downsizing and people really scrambling to figure out how, who am I? Like, who am I now? I was this, I was the executive director of blah, blah, blah. And I lost my job. And like, I I'm going through identity crisis. I don't know who I am, but I know I I was making this buttercream for my daughter's hair and it works really well. And my friends like it. It worked on my friend's daughter's hair, but you know, I know I could, you know, lead our company to the finish line, but I'm not really sure I could lead myself to the right. I'm not sure sure I could lead myself in business. So I feel like there's a lot of people that may be fitting in this category of like, they may have, you know, have to pivot, right? That's, that's one identity. There's this other identity of people who are in business and, and they have to pivot, but they've been able to be in business and they're trying to hold on. And then there's these other people that they maybe see coming behind them that, uh, you know, are looking a little bit shinier than them or a little bit less expensive. And they're trying to figure out how to bring more value, right, to what they're doing and, 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 and reinvent themselves. And, and what I hear is that you're helping people to understand, regardless of the economic conditions, as to how to be in business and, and have a healthy business and how to... uh acquire resources and how to uh, have a sustainable entity. So anyway, that was my long-winded way of saying, I hear you. And I want you to please dig in without giving away, right? Your special sauce. But can you just dig into that a, a little bit of where, where, where you, where you are bringing the value and helping people in this, in this time, in this shift? 
Absolutely. So one of the things that we did almost immediately after COVID, well, first of all, I want to give a shout out to my four-legged coworker who loves to like dip in and out of the scene here. This is Mr. Skittles. So um, I, I will see whether or not he deserves an IG page, but <laughs> um, he always loves to make a, a Zoom bomb on all of my Zoom calls. He doesn't they mess with me until he hears me on Zoom and then he wants to be right by me. Back to your question. So what we what we did as a result of COVID, we went into swift action. We knew we knew what was going to happen. We knew that our folks were going to be behind the eight ball. So literally our conference was, our shutdown order here in Minnesota was March 16th. Our conference was the 13th and the 14th. And so we, what we like to say is other than church, we were the last event that happened in Minnesota. But what we did is we went into swift action and we devised a number of webinars to respond to the situation that we knew that our business owners were going to need. So we had created these week-long boot camps that were very, very much action-oriented to actually, by the time they got done with us after a week, they had a plan to pivot their business. And so we knew that this was going to be really, really critical. And for those entrepreneurs who were able to, who joined us and we made it open to the whole entire United States, we put it out on our social media. These were free uh, webinars, but they were one week boot camps. Um, we offered them during lunchtime because the other thing that we do also know about our people is we stay on the hustle. So what I mean by that is, Many people, and I think this is where our ecosystem falls short, do not understand that many black and brown entrepreneurs have a full-time job, particularly the women. And you cannot go to a nine-month program. You cannot attend these eight-hour workshops. You got kids. You may have aging adults at home that you have to take care of. So these programs are just set up not for us, right? And then they wonder why none of us are in them. Right. Well, you didn't set this up for me. So we did these workshops and I would say almost everyone who has gone through our workshop, um, their business is, if not surviving, it's thriving because they were able to get in. They we we worked with them. We had them go through these very, very pointed workshops um, every day and they worked on a different thing every day. So, like I said, we're very action oriented. We're not here to talk at you. You're here to work. And if you put in the work, you're going to reap the rewards of the work, right? But this whole idea of like, you need to understand how your business works. But I think here's the other thing that's really, really critical that was not only valuable to me, it was an aha moment for me, but I, I transmitted this aha moment to the folks that we do workshops with is one of the first things that we talk about is it is okay if you don't feel that you understand this. It is okay if you feel an aversion to this information or this topic. Part of that is you, you, we want you to acknowledge that you have been conditioned to think that. You have been conditioned to think that you don't understand math. I know you understand math because you pay your bills. You make sure you rob Peter to pay Paul to make sure everybody's taken care of and you've got food on the table. So I know you know how to do math, right? I know you understand finance because finance is addition, subtraction, division, and multiplication. And I know you know how to do that. So as long as you know how to do that, you are going to be just fine in any of our workshops, right? I think the other piece of it is 
what I have found, and it's not just in the in the Minnesota ecosystem, but in I, I before COVID, I traveled to sixteen conferences, sixteen to eighteen conferences a year. So I get to spend a lot of time in other ecosystems, and I've seen a lot of the same things over and over again. Whether it's a rural community or an urban community, or even a tribal community, in some cases, is that we don't dream big enough for our entrepreneurs. We dream too small for them, and we are putting up glass ceilings for them. And I've challenged our ecosystem. We need to show them a pathway to what's bigger. Doesn't mean they have to go. Maybe that's not their life dream. What Going back to your point of self-determination, maybe that's not their life dream. Um, but if it is, sometimes you don't know that until someone shows it to you. So back to your point about college. I was the first person in my family to go to college. I did not have somebody to see that that was even an option. It just was just something that I happened to be in an environment where that I went to a performing arts high school. And so college or conservatory was the next logical step. So I was a product of my, my school environment. Um, I went to a very small, small school. We had like my, my graduating class is 150 people. So it was a very small school. So when you have that kind of um, insulated community and it was a performing arts community, um, you you that becomes like a surrogate family. So I had the I had that to look at as like, oh wow, they're going to college. I didn't necessarily have my family telling me that going to college was was that was my life plan. Um, but I was in this community that was like, everybody else was doing it. So it was the compulsion, the peer, not even peer pressure, but just the compulsion, everybody else was doing it. So like, I should probably be doing that too. But it wasn't like, I grew up, like I'm going to college, right? Like that's in the plan. Not only, not only for just practical reasons, but also just, we didn't have the money there. Like there was no money for me to go to college. Right. Um, so you need somebody who, and, and, and if anybody has been through any kind of sort of trauma, Right. Sometimes you get to a point in the trauma where you need somebody to believe in that believe in you more than you believe in yourself, right? You need to have somebody who is like, I know that you don't think that this is possible, but I'm telling you that it is. And I have every faith in you that you can do this. And I'm going to walk with you on this journey to get there, right? And I think that sometimes, particularly because a lot of these programs are set up by white folks that... The, the way that it's communicated is the intention is there. They, they have great intent, but the impact and how it's being put together and how it's being portrayed is from a, a savior complex. And that can't be received by us, right? It feels like charity. It feels like, or it's their own biases that don't think that you don't think that I can actually do more than what I'm doing. And I would even say this of even black and brown uh, entrepreneur support, you know, support folks is that sometimes because we've been in that system that we start to get conditioned to, to dream small and we transmit those small dreams to our entrepreneurs who end up staying small. So I'll give you another quick example and then I'll shut up. So I was I was on a call with a bunch of ecosystem support organizations here in the Twin Cities, and with this was after George Floyd and and the and the um, civil revolution that was happening here in the Twin Cities, and we had a lot of damage um, that was done to um, one of our incubator spaces, our food incubator spaces, and. Um, they, they, they were devastated. And of course, with the shelter in place order, people weren't coming. And those, a lot of those businesses were not tech enabled. They weren't delivery enabled, blah, 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 blah. All the same things we've heard in all the other communities. So I'm on this call 
Now, the other thing, if you're not familiar with the Twin Cities, we have the largest number of Fortune 500 companies in one state. There is, we are number one. We have like 17, I think the last count was 17 or 19 Fortune 500 companies here. Many of them in the consumer packaged goods. And if you're not familiar with consumer packaged goods, that's basically anything you find on the shelf in a Target, a Walmart, a grocery store. That's consumer packaged goods. So I said on this call, you know, there was a lot of like, you know, heartache about what was happening and what were they going to do to support these businesses and what what should they do and how to pivot them. And I, I to me, which was no brainer, I said, and I, and I remember talking about this before, years before with this same group of folks. I said, well, I know that any of the entrepreneurs in that particular incubator space, I love all their food. I love all their soups. I love all their sauces. Why has there been anybody who's connected those businesses with Target, with General Mills, with some of these other consumer packaged goods companies to package their recipes for mass production? And it was like, oh, wow, that's a really good idea. <laughs> to me, it was like a duh, right? I'm like, if you want if you want to help them pivot, first of all, this is something that should have been happening already. But even if it didn't, like, that's the way to pivot. Get them onto the store shelf. We're, we're already seeing that there's a food shortage. Well, let's get their product onto shelves so people can have these products that they're, they they have an affinity towards and, may, and having a digital marketplace for that. And so it's these sorts of things where like, I don't think that it's intentional, but this whole notion of like, we're not actively making the connections to actually help these entrepreneurs grow. We're staying in our little bubbles. We're staying in what's convenient for us. And I and I challenge. I was just on on uh, did a presentation in front of the SBA, the re, the seven regional offices of the SBA last week, and I challenged them with this notion of being an entrepreneur is the second hardest job after parenthood. And all too often, we as entrepreneur support organizations make it easy for us. We don't make it easy for them, right? So what I, what I mean by that is your office is only open from nine to five. You have no services that are available on the weekends. Well, each industry has their own sort of ups and downs, right? The restaurant industry, yeah, they're they're usually closed on Monday, but they're out go getting their doctor's appointments done because that's the only day that they're, they can get them done, right? I mean, so we have to understand what are the nuances and the problems, like who are we serving and for what purpose and how do we make their life easier, Right. And so I think we we as an ecosystem and people providing services to the ecosystem need to be better about centering the entrepreneur and how do we make it easier for them to show up. Um, So in our events, we do our events at night and on the weekend. We provide child care at all of our events, even our conference. We provide child care. We also feed people. So now you can show up with, all, we, you know, obviously we can't solve all your problems, but we can at least create an environment where you know, where you can bring your whole self. You don't have to worry about the kids. We have a childcare provider who's licensed. They're going to be able to take care of your kids for the hour and a half that you're going to be with us. You know, if you are going to be with, um, if you, uh, you may not have a meal ready at home, right? Don't worry about that. We got you. We've got food here. And it's actually from one of our local entrepreneurs. So now you might want to like be, have that be an entrepreneur for, for um, that you support now that you know that this entrepreneur is in your community and looks like you. So these are the things that we, that are simple things. These are, these are little things that actually can be done to, to rearrange how we show up for our entrepreneurs to make their work 
easier to make their growth better. And so we can create a more inclusive economy. Thank you for that. And um, you said so many great things in there. I really hope that anyone listening within the sound of uh, this podcast really takes that in because we, j- we have to do things differently. If, if, if nothing else that we've seen over the last year or even the last week or two, <laughs> we've got to do things differently. And so um, thank you for that. And thank you for giving a bit more understanding because as you said, sometimes when we hear about, uh, I know for me as a creative, if I hear about finance, I'm thinking peanuts, like womp, 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 womp. So thank you for making that um, much more comprehensible for, for a person like me, more visual, you know, learner. Can you talk about uh, social impact now as a, as an entity? Tell us about, you know, um, how, how this came about for you and what it is to be running your own B Corp, if you will. Yes. So this is my third venture into entrepreneurship. Um, I'm 50 years old and the first two were by accident. The first two times I was an entrepreneur, it was after a protracted period of unemployment. (laughs) And um, the second time I was, by that time, I was a single parent. And so like not eating was not an option, (laughs) right? So what I did was I did what I actually did the first time, which was I just called everybody I knew. My background was marketing and communications. So I called every single person that I knew. I said, hey, I'm available to do any kind of consulting. Um, um, and through that, um, started to get work, uh, working on different projects. And then from that, people started referring me and I grew a business uh, around uh public relations, marketing and communications consulting. And um, my second foray um, was cut short. I was actually doing really, really well. I I had hired my first, I had a part-time employee, um, but I was, I was really starting to now like, oh, wow. Okay. This is a thing. Like I really need to start building a team. I was running the whole thing out of my apartment. um, And I, um, then 9-11 happened. And within 60 days, all my client, every, all my revenue dried up. Um, if you've ever worked in marketing and communications, you know that marketing communications, whenever there's an economic uh, downturn, marketing is the first to go. No one understands what you do. And because they don't understand what they do, they think it's not, they, they don't need it. Right? So, so um, I, my business literally like tanked in like months and um, I ended up having to go back into, to the working world, into corporate America. Um, so this time I had been working uh, in, on, in philanthropy for eight years. I was the director of development and communications for a native led organ national organization and um, started to see some parallels between the work that I was doing in this organization around working with native nonprofits around how to think more entrepreneurially, how to develop revenue streams outside of government grants. Um, I had the misfortune of seeing, and as a result of 2012, a number of native nonprofits close their doors because they could not make payroll because the government wasn't writing checks because of sequestration. 
And I started to see a lot of parallels between that and what was happening in the entrepreneurship community, just in general here in the Twin Cities. And what I mean by that is that there wasn't the resources, there wasn't people telling them how to diversify their revenue streams, there wasn't people telling them basically how to fish, they wasn't, nobody was telling them how to put the infrastructure in place that was actually going to support the business that would help them through times like this. And so fast forward um, four years after kind of having that revelation and also seeing this thing called impact investing and hearing about social enterprises, um, I started to learn everything that I possibly could about all of those things. And after being at the organization for eight years, I thought that that was a good amount of time to be somewhere. I feel that my my personal philosophy is once you've been in an organization for eight or nine years, you are pretty much reaching the point of dimish, diminishing returns. There's not a whole lot you can offer that organization that of your best thinking, right? So it's time to either make a change within the organization or change in yourself or, or to move on. And so I was deciding to move on. And I wasn't going to start a business. Um, But I knew, particularly as I was approaching the second half of my life, I was becoming middle-aged. I really wanted the second half of my life to be very different than the first half. Um, The first half of my life, I felt very grounded in white supremacy. I had been to predominantly white schools. I had been in predominantly white organizations. Um, I had worked really, really hard to be not black so that I could fit in, assimilate and, and grow, go up the, the corporate ladder. And I, that wasn't happening. <laughs> so as I started to reflect uh, in my forties and um, really trying to figure out what was the next chapter of my life or what I wanted the second half of my life to be, I said, well, I made all these changes. I did all these things. I, I, I showed up in a way that wasn't authentic to me and, and I, and I didn't get where I wanted to be. So this, The next chapter, I wanted to be very unapologetically me and understanding that that still may not get me. If I'm not going to get to where I'm going to go, I'm going to not get there being my authentic self. (laughs) So from 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 there, it was really this transformation of, I think, how we started our, our, our call before before we got onto the podcast of just like, who am who who is Elaine Rasmussen? What is who? what, what are, what is, what does she stand for? Um, what do I want to do? I've, I've always been in social justice causes, but what I was seeing in the world, not only in philanthropy, but particularly in finance, um, nobody was saying the things that needed to be said. And as I was deciding after I left my organization of what I was going to do, I knew that I did not want to be, I wanted, I did not want to be censored wherever I'm going to go and whatever I'm going to do. I don't want to be censored. And I experienced a lot of that in the previous organization where I worked. And I felt that the stakes were too high to keep being nice and euphemistic about the problems and aches of black and brown folks, particularly as it related to finance and finance like tech, I feel like is one of the last vestiges that white supremacy has a hold of. And, um, but there's so few of us who really understand finance, like fi- like finance. And because I had a finance background, um, I had a community development background, I had a philanthropy background I, and, and had been an entrepreneur. I felt like I had a very unique perspective that could add, be additive, um, but also be able to check some of the euphemistic or um, colonistic 
or patriarchal notions that were put forth under the guise of whatever BS was being shoveled, right? And so to really um, be able to unpack that, because I think a lot of times when community leaders come into these conversations, um, while they're very, they're very um, uh, eloquent about naming the problem, um, because they don't understand finance, they can't direct it to the actual policies and practices and procedures that need to be changed and addressed. So then the argument kind of falls flat, not for not for validity reasons, but because you haven't actually taken apart the thing to demonstrate, no, this is this is the piece of it that's wrong. And unless you're willing to do that, I was as I was listening to MLK this morning uh, in preparation for my the event that I'm going to be talking to tonight. This um, uh, I wrote it down, but it was uh, this um, vacillation, right? That 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 the power structures um, or or giving the laziness of giving just enough to satiate, but not without doing anything real about undoing this, the, the structures, but you've got to know the structure. You've got to know what it is that needs to be broken down. Otherwise, even if you wanted to get people on your side, you can't get people on your side because they, they, they need you to make that connection for them. You shouldn't have to, but you do. So with all of that, I really wanted to be purpose first. I really wanted to be mission first. I really wanted to be about doing things differently and not just for the sake of doing things differently, but to actually work at a systems level. So when we looked at entity types, we it was really important for us that we were um, uh, mission aligned and that we really were grounded in our, our culture and our values of the organization. And so what that meant for us was um, um, having an entity structure. So just to make a distinction, there's there's B Corp, right, which is the benefit corporation. That's a tax entity status um, here in the in Minnesota. We are not a B um, a benefit corporation. We are B Lab certified. So the, the the B Lab certification has nothing to do with your entity status, but it is sort of a, a moniker that you get to carry that you that pe- lets people know that you are mission first organization, that you are social enterprise. So I just always I want to always want to make that distinction because it's a little confusing, um, but hopefully there'll be one. <laughs> and at some point, I think that's what B Lab would would love to be able to say, but for right now, there's a tax entity structure that's a benefit corporation that is not available in all 50 states. Um, Then there's B Corp. Um, You can be a B Corp, um, uh, which has nothing to do with your tax status, and that is available in all 50 states. It's kind of what I like to say is like, um, and I I hate to use this because I feel it's a little bit flippant, but um, you're organic, right? Having the good housekeeping seal of approval that uh, that you are engaging in a set of practices and policies, not only in how you hire um, your your operations, but also in where you purchase your your materials or your relationships, your partnerships, your vendors, um, your your uh, economic foot. I mean, your environmental footprint, your economic footprint. That there are there are standards and practices that you're following. Um, that is the B Lab certification. Thank you for that. And you know, I start. I have in Detroit. We have it's called the L3C, and so I have a, a social entrepreneurship. And I found out about it in uh, 2000 and maybe eight, nine, and um, that was when it first started here. And so I had been studying it um, all this time, and um, I think I finalized my paperwork around 2014, around thereabouts. And it's a constant, you know, learning with um, how to do things differently. And my, 
my business partner, when I told her, she's like, why don't you just be a 501c3? Like, all this is just doesn't make any sense. And um, she was like, you can have, you know, you, you, you have your LLC, just get your 501c3. And um, I knew for what I wanted to do that the social entrepreneurship structure was really the way to go. And interestingly enough, as we've gone on through time, we've seen this now. I mean, when I'm on Clubhouse or Twitter or every, all the millennials are talking about the impact, impact, you know, social responsibility. And so uh, people like yourself or myself, who this is organic for us and where we were struggling with people and they didn't get it. Now there's like all this funding where to where it's kind of annoying when people come and say, oh, you know, I have a triple bottom line and my social impact. And I'm just thinking like, oh, my God, these words. But um, just really, you know, grateful for the business that you have to help other people be in business and understand, right, like how to be in business and and to have this awareness with yourself to know that this is where. Uh, the good that you can do in the world and the value you you can bring. Um, I think sometimes, especially as black women, I believe in, 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 in listening to black women, that that's where many of us struggle is in wanting to have a certain level of achievement, but not necessarily understanding um, where we can bring value in a way that is mutually uh, uplifting. And so thank you for having that, that centeredness, that, that sense of awareness um, and caring for our people and our planet, you know, in this way. So, so necessary. Um, so now I want, you've told us a little bit about Connect Up. I mean, uh, you know, you've told us some of the, you know, maybe workshops you've had or things you've learned or, you know, experiences, but can you give me an understanding of how this came about, how you were able to create this event, like that process? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, um, my role in philanthropy took me all over the country. And um, as I mentioned, I even, uh, you know, I, I attended 16 to 18 conferences a year of varying degrees. But one thing that was common in them is that particularly if you were new to the field or if you were new to the conference, that it was very much like high school. Um, everybody kind of had their cliques. They knew each other. They weren't really trying to like meet new people. And so it was really hard to kind of break in, um, it took me about three or four years when I started my journey working in philanthropy to really kind of start seeing the same people, right? Like I, I'd gone to enough conferences where I wasn't seeing the same people. And it wasn't until about year three, year four, I was like, oh, I, I like met you before. And, and okay, like I, I started getting my bearings as far as like all the people that I would see around. But even then it was a very superficial relationship, which was also something I wasn't really used to. I was really used to, um, just different kinds of ways of forming relationships, particularly professionally. And I don't know if that was a, a, a demarcation of, of being in marketing, which is a bunch of extroverts. Like, I don't know, but it was just really different. And so um, the other thing that I found was they were so big. 
that one of the big conferences uh, that um, particularly for social enterprises and social impact investors, 3,500 people go to this conference. How in the world are you supposed to have any sort of relationship building when a conference is that big? And so I thought, wow, like, what must that be like for an entrepreneur? Because because this conference, it's in San Francisco and it's every October, especially this, it's an international conference. So you have people who maybe English isn't even their first language and they're coming to this conference like, how traumatizing must that be for them, right? I know how traumatizing it was for me. The first year I went, I was just so overwhelmed. I'm in another city. I'm not at home. I'm not in my bed. I, you know, there's, there's, while I've been to San Francisco many times before and I had friends there, it's, it's when you're going there for work, you're trying to like focus on work and what are the things and who are the people I'm supposed to be seeing as part of my, my job, right? Which is a very different experience than if I'm going on vacation, and so from from that, it was very much about um, I just I, I I never got over that. It stayed with me, even though as I built a career in philanthropy of just how how especially in philanthropy, how much of the conference scene was so not about relationship building. They said that they were, but they, that really wasn't it. Right. Um, particularly because philanthropy is mostly white people, right? So, so like, of course, it's still going to be this difficult experience, right, for a person of color. Um, and so when I left philanthropy and I started seeing what was going on in the ecosystem, um, it goes back to what I said earlier of, like, I, I really wanted this, I wanted something that was different. And me being me, I'm like, Listen, I am not the only person who has thought of this. I'm smart. I'm not that smart. I'm sure there is somebody else who has thought of this. So I literally went around for six months trying to find something that was what I imagined, right? A place that was really grounded in relationship building, a place that was for people of color, a place that um, was really intentional on building connections that were actually going to level up your business. And I couldn't find it. And I went, looked all over the country and I saw things that were kind of like that, but not really. And so that's when I went on this journey of, let me just start asking people if I, if there was a space and I literally went, I literally, I probably talked to about a thousand people. And I said, if there was a place that was grounded in storytelling, that was grounded in um, the lived experience of black and brown people, that was grounded in cross-pollinating networks, that was grounded in deep relationship building, also very action-oriented education, and had a component of co-designing what the future could look like, is that something you would want to be a part of? And everybody said yes. Everybody said yes. Well, here's the thing you need to know about Minnesota. (laughs) Minnesota is very passive aggressive and people love to say yes when they don't really mean it. But once again, I'm a strategist. So I played the odds. I said, okay, I've talked to about a thousand people. If just 20% of them, of the people who said yes, actually came, that's still a good party, right? It's like, I'm going to have a dinner party and and, and let's see who shows up, right? (laughs) So um, I'm like, okay. And so that for that first connect up, I told my team, which at the time was like three people, <laughs> um, no, two people and myself. I was the third person. <laughs> I said, our goal is 125 people. If we can get 125 people in the room, like this will be success. <laughs> and so literally it was a matter of, and especially as I started telling my team, I, I started thinking about, well, what were all the things that I didn't like about the conferences that I attended, right? I didn't like that 
I didn't know what the content was. I didn't like that. I didn't know what the framing was going to be. I didn't like that. Um, um, many of the people who are going to be speaking didn't look like me. And so I just started thinking, I'm like, okay, so the one by one, these are all going to be the things that I'm going to undo. Right. Um, and so fast forward and it was like sketchy there for a minute, right? Like we were really not getting the traction and particularly when we told people they had to interview. So that was another big thing. I'm like, you have to interview to come to the conference. And people were like, that was not cool, especially for when we're talking about investors who are used to like the world being their oyster and opening up for them. They're like, what do you mean I have to interview? Like, I what? Like, no, everybody has to interview. And they talked to somebody on our team and it's a 20, 30 minute interview. But the first one sold out two weeks before the conference. I actually had clients. And I think that was the other thing. People didn't take it very seriously. And so when we sent out the email blast saying that it was sold out, I had clients calling me from the consulting business. Oh, we just got your message. Is it really sold out? Yeah, it's really sold out. I mean, our, our, our conference was going to be in a hotel. It wasn't going to be in this open space. So we have fire marshal rules we have to adhere to, and we're at capacity. And I'm not, I'm not about to have my event shut down for you. Like, <laughs> that, that's what's not going to happen. Um, but they really didn't believe. I probably had five or 10 calls. I had five calls each week for the following two weeks of people who wanted to come. And these are people we had been telling about the conference for four, four months and they wanted to wait. And then when they saw that it was sold out, they were like, oh, well, I guess it's good enough for me to come to. And I'm like, well, you can't. Sorry. And it was a booming success. And it was funny because I told my team, so I gave my team a, the week off after the conference. And when we got back and people were sending us emails and like, they were just like, oh my God, this was amazing. And we were seeing the social media activity after the conference. And so I came in uh, the following week and told my team, I said, so we got to do this again. Like, literally, we need to start planning for the next one. Like we and they were just like, yeah, yeah. Like they were just they were we were all surprised. Like I, it was a, I wouldn't say that it was a surprise. And like we didn't think that we could be successful. We knew what we were doing and we knew what we the impact we wanted to make. And we knew that we were going to have that. What we didn't know was how it was going to be received. Right. And to see that people really resonated with how we curated the, the space. We had so many people um, thank us for the inner, like curating the people and the space. Um, they were like, it felt good to walk in and like, like the first thing when you walk in, we have music blasting. We have our own playlist, um, at, at which we curated from the people who were attending. We asked them to contribute to the playlist and the playlist was playing when you walked in the door. There happened to be another conference that was happening right next door to us. And we had a whole bunch of white people who were coming into our conference, which our conference is open to everybody. Um, but then when the when these folks found out that they were in the wrong conference, they're like, "Well, I want to stay here." Yeah, <laughs> they were. They're like, "Yeah, this is cool. I like this." Hey. <laughs> yeah, so it was like, "Oh, yeah." It's like that was kind of the first inkling of like we might have, we might have found something here. But our plan is we want to replicate this in other communities. So right before COVID, we were talking to five cities, and one of them was Detroit. A bring connect up to to those communities. So uh, we want to work with partners on the ground and do a revenue share model to bring like we have the back office. We know all the back office pieces. We know how to how to actually put it on. Um, what we need are, are people on the ground to have relationships in those communities. And so that's why we want to do a revenue share model with anybody who wants to partner with us to bring connect up to their community. Wow, this is so cool. I 
millions of ideas are just like spinning in my head and I have a bajillion questions, but there's only so much time. And I, I, I do want to understand. So like when I was little, I, my mom gave me all these black Barbies, right? And my black Barbies had um, an Afro. I used to pick her hair. I used to, I had sewing machine. I used to design her outfits and make and sew and make her outfits. I had the little, the, the Corvette and the, uh, the townhouse. And um, I remember when everyone would say, well, um, Piper, where's Ken? And I'd be like, um, Ken is at home cleaning up because um, I'm at work. <laughs> And I would have Ken at home in the kitchen doing the dishes. And she and Barbie would be in the car, you know, driving all around. <laughs> and she would come home, say hi. And then she'd have to get a new outfit, you know. She had to put on her next new outfit because she got to go do some business. You know, she was an entrepreneur. And so I'm wondering, Little Elaine, who is Little Elaine? Because I believe that. All that you are was there in Little Elaine, you know, somewhere, some pieces of it. You know, where was Little Elaine and what was she doing? And how did Little Elaine become this dynamic, amazing, incredible woman that we see her today? Well, thank you for that. Um, it was rough. I mean, I grew up very, very, very poor. Um, my 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 parents, my mom and my, my, my dad died when I was very, very, very young um, under very uh, questionable circumstances, <laughs> which I won't get into. Um, my mom uh, got together with my stepfather and had my brother and we were living in a two bedroom apartment in Hollywood, California for up until I was about 15, 16 years old. With that, though, what I will say, and my 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 stepfather was an alcoholic turned drug addict, so my mom had to deal with all of that. She was with him most of my most of my youth. Um, but what I mean, and it's funny because I just had this conversation with my mom the other night. How grateful I am to her um, for amongst all of that craziness and all of that drama and all of that chaos that she had the foresight to put my brother and I through private school. There was a, there was a small Catholic church that was not too far. It was in walking distance of our home. And I know my mom, like, I know my mom was working two and three jobs. Um, and, uh, especially with my stepfather, like getting DUIs constantly and, and doing all kinds of damage and things like that when he was a belligerent drunk (laughs) and, um, to be able to, um, have the foresight to decide to put my brother and I through Catholic school, because that has been a foundation of just having a solid education and a solid education, not only in the formal sense, but also in understanding white supremacy. Right. So I got to learn the system from the inside (laughs) and being a student of, of, of study. I love studying things, right. I just love studying people. I love studying things and understanding how they work, how they tick. Um, and um, my mom also had the foresight. My mom was a vegetarian going back to the 70s. So I was set up with really good eating habits. I hated healthy food. <laughs> I did go on a binge um, when I went to college. But to this day, and I was telling this to my mom as well, I'm like, I cannot eat bad badly. It's, I just can't. Like my, 
there's nothing about me that wants to eat badly for long periods of time. When I go on vacation for a week or two, that may be the extent of it. And I'm like, I've got to get back to like healthy eating. This just doesn't feel good. Right. So I, I have the good fortune of that being set up for me. The other thing was my mom was very much about around getting me in activities and um, for, for 20 years, I was a classically trained dancer. So I did all kinds of dance. And um, that also continues to pay off because I think what you learn as any performer, like any, any, whether it's dance or theater, um, you learn one, you learn the art of studying, right? You learn the art of studying people, places, and things. You learn to look at the whole, to look at the macro, to look at the micro, because you have to, you've got to understand what is your place in the scene. You need to understand your place on the stage. You need to understand your place amongst the audience. Like you need to understand all these things that are all happening at the same time, right? And I feel like finance and and entrepreneurship are both, they both have those those aspects in them, but also around discipline. And what I mean by discipline is not so much like you punish yourself for doing something or not doing something, but the discipline to actually get through something that's difficult, right? If you have a and you and any athlete will tell you this. If you are if you're a skater and you're trying to hit that triple lux, right? If you are um, a runner and you're trying to break your last time, to to keep going, to, you know, even when you don't feel like it, even when you've your toes are bloody, you know, to be to keep going that persistence, even though you don't want to, even though you don't feel like it, even though you're in pain, um, to to forge forward has also set me up for not only entrepreneurship, but a lot of other aspects of my life to be able to push through the difficulty. Um, and I feel like that has also blessed me in this COVID time. I have a lot of friends who are really having, a, they're really struggling, um, particularly my single friends who are struggling during this this past year. And um, that that fortitude that I've built by by being a performer, I think has really helped me to be able to keep me sane of just like, no, I'm going to get through this and then there'll be something else and I'm going to get through that and it's okay. And so that was built in. But also going back to me being a kid, I was also very quiet. Um, I, it's hard to believe, but I'm actually an introvert. I am happy staying at home, not talking to anybody, including my spouse. Like, <laughs> I love quiet. I love silence. I love it. <laughs> and um, when I when I left to go to college, after my first year of college, I realized, you know, being an introvert is not a good pathway to having a successful business career or setting business. <laughs> and so I, what I did was going back to the, the previous example was I spent my second year of college volunteering for every public speaking opportunity that I could. Because I was just so deathly afraid of it. And I know my personality, the only way for me to get over something is to immerse myself in it. So I literally like, I I did um, uh, 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 talent contests. I joined the radio program. I became um, a part of dorm government. I Like anything that had to do with like being out in public and having to talk to people, I did it. I like, and, and every single time, like, and, and so it's funny, people ask me, they're like, you know, it seems like you're just so cool about like speaking in public. And I said, I'm less nervous now. I, I don't get the, 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 the choking butterflies. I said, but I'm always nervous. I'm always, but I've also accepted I'm, I'm fallible. I've also accepted that I'm going to make a mistake. And that mistake doesn't say anything about me. It doesn't say anything that I'm less than it doesn't, it's, it just says that I'm human. Right. But I've also, like I said, I, you know, from the time I was 13, 
I marched in, in, I went up to Sacramento to march against budget cuts against arts programs. So I've always been socially minded. And I'll be honest, I don't know where that comes from. I didn't come from a necessarily social justice grounded home. Um, but I think it had to do with my adopted art artist community, which artists tend to be very vocal. Artists tend to be very um, grounded in um, their identity, whatever that identity is. They all, they're very grounded in, in what their vision for the world is. And so having that modeled for me where I didn't, my home was very much set about, set up assimilating in assimilation with the exception of my grandmother, who I got to see once a week. <laughs> my grandmother was the antithesis of that. But when you're not around that all the time. I only saw her once a week for a couple of hours um, because she was a live-in nurse. Um, So my whole, the rest of my week was really around assimilation. Don't, don't, don't rock the boat. Don't um, go against the grain, Um, you know, demonstrate that you're bright and intelligent, but even within a Catholic school, there was still a lot of subtle racism, right? And I don't think it was, I don't think they meant to, um, but there's also sexism, right? The whole notion of like, boys being affirmed around math and girls not being affirmed around math. I have vivid memories of that showing up in the classroom and and when I was growing up. So I I just think that the one through thread of all all of that is that I've always just accepted my quirkiness. I feel like I was, I was the uh, awkward black girl before Issa Rae (laughs) made, she, she gave us a term of what to call ourselves, but I was, I was maybe the original awkward black girl or one of the original awkward black girls And so just, I just had to accept that that I was just an awkward black girl. I really didn't feel comfortable in the black community because my neighborhood was mostly Hispanic. Um, I didn't really feel 100% comfortable with white people because I'm not white. Um, And then having to go to, I went to private school for eight years and begged my parents to go to public school for one year. And, um, um, when I when I begged my parents, they they let me go to public school for one year. I promised them I'd go back to Catholic school. And I will tell you that that year in ninth grade was such a hard year. The black kids were so much meaner to me and horrible to me than any other ethnic group. And I was confused. I was so confused. And I went into a very deep depression because I couldn't understand how people who look like me could be so awful to me and say things to me like, you know, I think I'm white because of the way that I speak or that, you know, I participate in classes. And I said, you know, and I would tell them even, even at, at the tender age of like 15, I said, listen, even if for, I thought that I was not black for one moment, white people are really good about reminding me as well as my mirror every morning of like the fact that I'm black. So I understand what you're talking about. <laughs> but we also know like that's all that crabs in a barrel sort of mentality, right? And so that was really, really devastating to have to go through as a young person because I also feel like my parents failed me. They really didn't teach me that racism existed, right? There was like these theoretical things that happened like in my mom's work, like this happened or that happened, but like it never got transmitted down to like what my experience of racism would be as a kid. And so I remember being like at 15, 16 years, being 15, 16 years old, being really angry. And my, my parents like, why did you tell me like, this is what I was going to be having to go through, right? Like it was just kind of this weird sort of antithesis um, uh, of my upbringing. But all of that is like fed into me just kind of, to your point, going back to going back to some of those roots and just being unapologetic about who I am and knowing that what I have to offer isn't for everybody and that's okay, but that and and that if it's not for that person, whether it's in the work that I do or the human that I am, that doesn't say anything about me and it doesn't say anything about them. It's just, listen, if there's a buffet and you don't find anything you want at the buffet, 
doesn't mean the buffet is bad. doesn't mean that you're bad. That just means there's nothing for you at the buffet, right? And so really just adopting this of like, hey, you know, we, we're all stars bouncing off one another. And sometimes we can collide and sometimes we can actually spin and make some energy and make something beautiful and then bounce off. And, and that's that maybe that was the season we're supposed to be in. But I'm really grateful to to all of my experience, the good, bad and the ugly, because I, I'm I'm happy with who I am. And I don't know if a lot of people can say that. That's so beautiful. Like as you're speaking, Everything you said just resonated with me. I don't know if it's because we're the same age or I have a parallel life. I was a dancer too. So everything you said is like so, including the awkward black girl and the whole, you know, struggle with identity as a youth and being placed from private school to public school and that trauma. Um, yeah, that that's a series. But um, I... <laughs> I really appreciate you spending this much time and sharing of yourself and just having us understand the important work that you're doing and for the impact that you are making in the world. I know that we've got to really invest more into the work that you're doing. And so please help folks understand how can, you know, this work be resourced and uplifted and strengthened and sustained. Wonderful. Yes. Cause I know we're running out of time here. So I'll try to make this brief. So um, like you, we've launched, we've launched a sister organization called the connect up Institute. That's where we're actually going to move all of our education and our other programming. And then we're going to keep the consulting under social impact strategies group. So if you are an organization and you're trying to understand how can you deliver your programs better, how you can promote inclusive economics, no matter whether you're a corporation, a nonprofit, government official, definitely hire us. We'd love to work with you. Um, on the ConnectUp Institute side, we are launching an integrated capital fund, which is going to offer blended capital um, grants, debt, and equity to Black and Brown entrepreneurs across the region here in the Midwest. So if you're looking to partner and invest in that, we would welcome you. We have um, our... Um, Tech on Deck Hackathon that we're going to be doing. Um, so we're looking for that will be a one day event where we're getting entrepreneurs uh, digital marketing collateral material as well as uh, digital payment enablement, tech enablement. Um, we've got some other partners that we're going to be working on, major corporate partners that are going to be um, partnering with us on that. So we're looking for sponsors. We're looking for partner organizations. We're looking for volunteers. We're also looking for um, um, uh, donations um, as far as that's concerned. We are also going to be launching our virtual pop-up, um, which will feature will be a marketplace, a time-bound marketplace that is to boost volume sales for entrepreneurs of color. So not onesie, twosies. These we're going to be marketing this uh, B2B business to businesses. So some of these larger corporations like our Fortune 500 companies, we know they are still buying client gifts. We know that they are still buying employee gifts. And so we want to promote sales of 10 items or more. Um, for these entrepreneurs to really boost volume sales, not onesie, twosie sales. Um, so if you want to be a partner or a sponsor of that uh, event, please let us know. Uh, we are also going to be doing uh, our one-on-one -on -one advising. Um, we offer one-on-one -on -one coaching and advising to our small businesses. So if you want to be a partner or sponsor of that, we're also going to be launching, as I mentioned, our digital masterclass um, uh, a series that will be, um, these will be videotaped content 
that we, um, on demand, I'm sorry, on demand content that we provide that goes back to what we talked about, that missing middle of entrepreneurs, that entrepreneur cliff, it will be content specifically for those that business stage to help folks. So once again, we're looking for partners, we're looking for donations, we're looking for sponsorships. Um, uh, anybody who wants to, we're looking for some videographers, um, but um, uh, those are probably some of our big programs that we are all, we're looking to support as we um, develop our programming for this year. But we're also looking for other opportunities. We always want to partner with other organizations. So if we can feed our programming into the work you're already doing, uh, we're happy to have a conversation about that. Just reach out to us. Wow, that's a lot of great stuff. That's a lot of great stuff. Um, I'm definitely going to reach out to you. I was like, I'm going to do that one, that one, that one. <laughs> um, so, and then help us. Okay. So we see that you are socialimpactnow.com. Where are you on all your socials? So um, you can follow us on uh, IG at connect up. MN underscore. You can also find us if you just go into Facebook, put in connect up, you can put in social impact strategies group, or you can put in my name, you will find us. Uh, We are also on Twitter. So on Twitter, I believe it's at connect up MN or connect up underscore. Sorry. I am uh, old. I do not. I have young people who manage our (laughs) social media. They're going to kill me. Um, but definitely on IG, if you do go to connect up uh, MN underscore um, for anybody across the nation, we put lots of resources on there, particularly as it relates to PPP, as it relates to any grant opportunities to support your businesses, information, resources. We are very much about sharing. Sharing is caring. So anything that we find, um, we put on our IG channel. That is probably the best way to get the most up-to-date information that might be able to support your business. Uh, whether you're in the state of Minnesota or outside the state of Minnesota. Thank you so much, Elaine. So this is uh, Elaine Rasmussen. Yes, I said it correctly. I I really appreciate you taking this time. And I again, I really appreciate this work. It's so necessary. And just uh, keep supporting Black women and keep listening to Black women. Learn more about outstanding Black women leaders and how you can support their work at blackwomenleadus.com.